An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're very excited to welcome Jim Shin. Jim is a special level of polymath. He has filled his life with not one, not two, not even three, but four successful careers, technology, finance, academia, and government. I can't possibly cover Jim's career, but here's the highlight tour. Technology. Following time at AMD, Jim co-founded Dialogic, one of the first telecommunication firms using digital signal processing. Ultimately, it was sold to Intel. He was then an advisor or co-founder for various tech startups, including cybersecurity firm Haystack Labs, and data analytic firm Predata. Government. Jim was the Assistant Secretary of Defense, where his responsibilities included some of the United States' most global complex issues, including North Korea and China. He was also involved in developing DOD's policies for the war in Afghanistan, for which he gained a reputation for realistic analysis, as well as the Defense Department's highest civilian medal. Jim has also worked at the CIA and the Office of the National Director of Intelligence. Most recently, he focused on the question of technology issues in China from a national interest point of view for the State Department. I realize I just sort of said, oh, he also worked for the CIA and ONDI. When you say, but by the way, he also did that, you know you're talking about quite a resume. Finance. Jim's career started as a commercial banker for Chase, and you get a number of fintech companies to the list of startups Jim co-founded or advised, including Longitude, a derivatives trading platform, and Kensho Financial, a financial data analytics firm. Finally, academia. I actually first met Jim about 20 years ago when he and his co-author Peter Gorovich were examining corporate governance issues following the collapse of Enron and WorldCom. The book they wrote brilliantly analyzes the links between governance, finance, and politics. Jim's also written books and articles with such stars as Jeffrey Garton, Richard Arbitrage, Harold Brown, and Bob Zeldick and Jim was a visiting lecturer at Princeton for eight years. His latest undertaking is helping central banks develop digital currencies, which, as you will hear, are very different from cryptocurrencies. Finally, one quick story. I once ran into Jim at a hotel in Seoul, South Korea. I was at an international corporate governance conference. He wasn't. He was surrounded by a number of people with impressive military ranks. I asked him why he was there. It was during one of the many periods of tension with North Korea, and we reverted to the old joke saying, I'd tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. I'm still not sure he was joking. Welcome, Jim. <laughs> we were joking. I should point out in your very generous description of my career in government that I have spent years of my life working on some of the biggest failures in U.S. foreign policy, namely denuclearizing North Korea keeping the PRC out of the South China Sea and um, defeating the Taliban. So a lot of humility on that part. So what's your origin story? How did you become the person you are today? I grew up in a 
blue collar town in South Jersey, you know, one of those deindustrialized red brick factory towns that you see sometimes from the train. I can see it across the river on the Excella between Washington and New York when I go back and forth and uh, managed to go to Princeton and then sort of launched myself into Asia for the first decade or so of my life. When you were in government, you did develop this reputation for realism. Looking around the world today, what are the geopolitical issues we need to face with a more realistic perspective? Well, I would argue that every geopolitical crisis is best dealt with from a realistic perspective, not least because most policies that work have to be crafted with a sense of the world as it is, not as we wish it were. One of the things that struck me most about being up, up close and involved in foreign policymaking was the susceptibility of so many policymakers to the confirmation bias, which is to say that as you know, they have a view of the world, they have a hypothesis about what's happening. And then as the evidence comes in, they accept the ones which confirm their hypothesis and they discard those that don't, right? The famous confirmation bias of thinking. And um, I think that deep-seated intellectual bias probably accounts for how many failed foreign policies continue to be pursued year after year, like the 20-year war in Afghanistan. Are there any particular hot spots in the world today that you think that's playing out in particular? Is it China, Taiwan? On the other hand, is it Putin in Ukraine? You know, from the U.S. standpoint, we're actually doing a fairly good job of, of not being blinded by the confirmation bias, which I guess is, you could say that we've learned a few things from a couple of disastrous wars. But I'm sure you'd also agree that Putin almost certainly would not be pursuing this disastrous war of the Ukraine uh, in the disastrous way he's been doing it had he not been subject to his own confirmation bias. In addition to the, the apparently uh, faulty intelligence or flawed intelligence that he was fed by the FSB, which is intelligence apparatus in Ukraine, that the Russians were going to be welcomed with the flowers. So you've done all these different things. Is there a theme that unifies your interest in technology, finance, government, and central banking digital currencies? Only in the sense that um, there is a technology component to that at least initially got me engaged in a couple of these government jobs, probably most significantly the last one. I, I went into the government in 2022. In 2020, the COVID year, and spent a year working at the, in the State Department on how to deal with the challenge posed by the PRC in a couple of high-tech industries, including 5G telephony and semiconductors and machine learning. Often, the technological threat is couched in the mainstream press in a sort of, I, I would call it a barbell. There's the alarmist we are fully behind cybersecurity. Everything's linked. The PRC is getting ahead of us in everything from space technology to telecommunications. And then the non-serious, we have to watch out for TikTok. In your view, how should we be thinking about that threat? 
I think we should be thinking about it exactly as you suggested, which is when you look at the, at the challenges posed by the PRC, which really are unprecedented in terms of scale and sophistication of the economy and how that can translate into uh, geopolitical threats. It's important to distinguish the, the things which are merely amusing, like TikTok, from the things which are not amusing at all, which are Chinese theft of intellectual property to build advanced weapon systems. And so, as you suggested, distinguishing those two uh, is, is a pretty realistic way to start to craft a policy. And I think where you were going with that, that the two economies are so, and have been so intertwined for so long, for decades, including my first, including my first company, Dialogic. We had a big China operation. I made a lot of money in China and really liked spending time there back in the eighties and nineties, which industrial segments you decouple is a foreign policy challenge of the first order. And I think a new, right? We have, we haven't dealt with this before the U S economy and, the, and Russia with USSR and the cold war were you know, barely, barely intertwined. One might argue, and I have argued that, yeah, sure. You know, TikTok is fine. Um, and also it's great. You want to sell Apple products and you want to sell Tim Horton coffee and even Tesla's into, into the China market to keep us companies or multinationals that were profitable so they can reinvest in the technology. But there are some key sectors like semiconductors where you don't want that to happen and you positively do want to decouple. I wasn't going to ask this, but I have to. And North Korea just seems to be such an outlier, small country, really mediocre standard of living, perhaps the most repressive regime in the world. How has it maintained for decades? And, and, and so far as I know, China doesn't particularly love having it as a client country uh, for economic reason. So how, how does it manage to continue having this isolationist cult of personality government? Uh, three things. One, a combination of utter brutality by the Kim regime. Second is the successful manipulation of the national identity features of the North Korean family regime. And the third, I would argue, is that I would politely disagree with you on the role of the PRC here. North Korea is a PRC client state, and were it not for the economic aid, in particular the energy, the oil supply, which comes from one place across one pipeline from China, the North Korean regime would have ground to a halt decades ago. Speaking of realism, you know, this is one of the, uh, the facts in the world that, that the PRC gets a continual pass on. North Korea survives as a brutal client state because of decisions taken every day in Beijing. The same is true in what goes on in Burma and uh, increasingly in Pakistan. These are client states. Let's move from your past governmental policy left to your current life. Your latest focus is on creating and popularizing central bank digital currencies. 
first off, can you explain them? And secondly, particularly with a view to how they're different from cryptocurrencies? I'm working with a company called Bit, B-I-T-T, which is actually the leading supplier of the central bank digital currencies, CBDCs, to emerging markets in particular. Uh, A central bank currency and digital currencies overlap in many respects, but they're not the same thing. All cryptocurrencies run on blockchains, but not all central bank digital currencies run on blockchains, for starters. The world's leading CBDC in terms of size and deployment is actually by China, by the PRC. It's called the ECNY or the Electronic Chinese Yuan. Uh, and that doesn't run on a blockchain. It runs on a, 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 a huge centralized ledger, which, by the way, makes it easier for the PRC to use it as a tool of the surveillance state. But that's another discussion. So the architecture of CBDCs and cryptocurrencies can be different. But I think the most significant difference is that our cryptocurrencies are ultimately uh, issued by private entities, like the infamous FTT token issued by our friend Samuel Bankman-Fried that went down spectacularly a few weeks ago. Whereas a central bank digital currency is a liability of the central bank itself. And that basically, if there were to be a fiat U.S. dollar, which isn't happening any day soon, but will eventually, that's the full faith and credit of the Federal Reserve in your digital wallet, analogous to the $100 bill. If you have one in your wallet, I don't have much currency you carry around anymore, John. I don't. I don't have much paper in my wallet anymore. So these run on permission blockchains run by the central banks. But so what's the big deal? I mean, if a central bank digital currency is just a digitalized version of fiat currency, an e-rupee or an e-yuan, what's the big deal? Virtually all central bank transactions now are electronic. No one thinks the Fed is physically moving banknotes to and from J.P. Morgan or Bank America. So what is different and what is bit the firm you're with now trying to do and why is it beneficial? Well, central banks have a couple of different policy objectives for adopting a, a digital version of their fiat currency, fiat being, you know, like a dollar or like a, a NIDA in, in Nigeria or the Euro in Europe. And, and the merits of a CBDC vary by country and by central bank. One of BIT's customers, and I can't talk too much about these specifics since as a commercial entity, we are under confidentiality provisions with the central banks. But one central bank that we're working with estimates that it costs them one and a half percent of GDP a year just to maintain the paper cash, which is a huge, right? Because you, you got to print them, you got to distribute them. Uh, you got to ultimately dispose of them. So that, that's one. You just save on, on all this paper currency. A second objective that a lot of the central banks have with the CBDC is something they call financial inclusion, which is providing a way for citizens who are unbanked or underbanked to 
be able to perform financial services, which they currently to do only now with paper cash with all the overhead associated with it. So the Central Bank of Nigeria, and I can say this because it's a matter of public record, um, is issuing digital wallets for their citizens in which they carry the e-NIDA. And this is the first time that many Nigerians participate in any way in the, in the formal financial system. A third goal of some central banks in a, a digital currency, frankly, is to eliminate a money laundering and corruption. Particularly in emerging markets, a lot of payoffs and garden variety uh, bribery is done with big stacks of paper currency. And eliminating that eliminates much of the black economy. This is why, as you may remember, you may know two years ago, the Indian government basically eliminated all the rupee notes above certain quantity and it just crashed. It just crashed the black economy in India and it helped uh, bring them, bring it back into the real economy. And I think a, a fourth and, 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 and in many respects, in my view, the most important one is just economic efficiency. The legacy financial system that we have in the U.S. and mostly around the world of payments is incredibly expensive and incredibly slow. I think that the credit card companies extract something like $250 billion a year from U.S. consumers and businesses for maintaining a payment system, which is slow. It takes you days if you're a merchant and you settle a charge with Visa, it takes you, and you probably know this from your, from your extensive work in the fintech world, it, it takes a couple days before you even get the cash in your, in, in your account and you're paying between one and a half to 2% for, to these payment companies for doing essentially nothing in my modest view. So the payment rails associated with a digital currency can cut right through this, which is one of the reasons why you're getting so much objection to a digital dollar from so many of the legacy financial system uh, incumbents here. And internationally, the legacy systems are even more unacceptable. You know, according to the IMF, the annual remittances from workers from um, developed countries to emerging markets is about half a trillion dollars a year, ranges between 500 billion and uh, 700 billion, and it's the biggest flow of funds from developing countries to emerging markets. It's much bigger than the lending by the IMF or the World Bank. And yet the average cost, according to the World Bank, is 7%. So if you have a, a hardworking housekeeper from Honduras and she wants to remit her hard-earned money back home, it's going to cost her seven, you know, seven cents on the dollar, which is insane. I mean, you can do it instantly. And for a few basis points with a digital currency. And I think that's one of the biggest, that is one of the biggest drivers for particularly emerging market central banks adopting CBDCs. And it's for a very good reason, adding seven, seven percent of your remittance inflow. And I think for Honduras, remittances account for a quarter of GDP. You know, it has major consequences for accelerating economic development. And, and in particular for improving the incomes of some of the hardest working, hardest working, low income people on the planet. Let me 
ask you a question that sort of combines your government expertise, your CBDC work and general economic knowledge. Something that I suspect most people think about only sporadically and superficially, which is the U.S. dollar. How do you define the dollar's unique status in the world? And what does that enable the United States to do that it otherwise wouldn't be able to? Yeah, it is awfully important and rarely referenced either in the public discussions or surprisingly even in policy discussions. I think we're so used to it now that uh, that we forget how many degrees of freedom the U.S. has in conducting monetary and fiscal policy uh, because we are the reserve currency, the, the largest reserve currency. Uh, I, actually, I was just reading this last week and I'd recommend it to you, Alan Blinder. Uh, who actually was one of my professors at Princeton, wrote a marvelous book that just came out a little while ago. He describes this in, in considerable detail. I mean, he's really focused on fiscal, the interaction between fiscal and monetary policy in the U.S. But time after time, he shows the, he, he alludes to the, the fact that the U.S. policymakers could basically ignore the disciplining power of sovereign uh, debt markets because of the reserve dollar status, something that no other major central bank, much less any emerging market central bank, could ignore. I think listeners to the podcast understand that you've covered a ridiculous range of topics in your career. If you could go back in time, which previous project do you think would most benefit from the knowledge and experience you've gained to date? You, you started by mentioning failed policies. I don't suspect that you could individually change most of those, but was there a project or some other work that you would change how you approached? <laughs> That's an interesting thought experiment. I'll, I'll tell you the one that I've been, uh, uh, that I've been thinking about actually is, uh, you know, I went back to grad school at age 45 and, and had a wonderful time back at Princeton where it, it, Ben Bernanke taught me open economy macro and he was vastly amused to have a student a year older than he is. He's a great instructor, by the way, but hilariously funny as well, though he of course always came across appropriately sternly, you know, when making public statements as chairman of the Fed. And the point is that I wished that there was such a thing as a digital currency, even on the table then. Because, you know, I studied all the tools, thanks to Ben and others, Alan Blinder and Ken Rogoff, all the tools available to conduct monetary policy, you know, all the endless linear regressions that we use to estimate everything from real growth to, to the inflation rate. And uh, the digital economy presents so many transformational opportunities for the conduct of monetary policy. It's actually mind-blowing. For example, two of the key functions of monetary policy, one is estimating inflation, and the other is adjusting the levers of policy rates to dial the real economy up or down, right? Demand and investment up or down. Both will be conducted, could be and will ultimately, I, I'm, I'm confident, be conducted completely differently. So, for example, with the transactions data set generated by CBDCs, the Fed would have the ability to estimate a real-time inflation rate. They wouldn't have to guess it and get it wrong using old, stale, retrospective data that the Bureau of Labor Statistics uses 
right now, right? I mean, we all saw how the Fed got it so wrong over the last year. And the reason they got it so wrong isn't because they're stupid. I mean, they're smart and hardworking, but the tools available to them, you know, are like out of the 1950s. A couple of the, I think the, the St. Louis Fed, which historically has had some of the most sophisticated inflation tools, they use nail casting to try and use market data to estimate inflation rather than wait for the BLS, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, to conduct a poll. Uh, but their model uses 10 time series of which I think, as I recall, eight, eight of them are monthly. One is weekly, and only one is daily. I think it's they're using an energy price index from some energy market. So that'll be completely replaced with the data set generated by the digital dollar. And I think the transformational opportunities for CBDCs in the conduct of monetary policy itself is, even, is going to be much more important. When the Fed dials up, let's say, interest rates by a, uh, 25 basis points, which is the standard unit, although they've been cranking it up, as we all know, by much bigger increments recently. You know, according to economic analysis, it, the, the, the peak effect of dialing up the interest rate on reducing demand by households and businesses, it's four fiscal quarters later. It takes a year for, for the Fed to make a decision for them to go to, as you know, to go to the primary dealers uh, in, in New York, the New York Fed does it, for that to ripple through, you know, JP Morgan Chase and the lenders who then ultimately crank up consumer rates or mortgages a bit. I mean, that's an incredibly slow process. If you had an interest rate coefficient designed into the CBDC token, you could click it up by 10 basis points and it'll have an immediate effect on households and businesses' behavior. And because you have a real-time inflation index, you know what's happening, right? You can distinguish between nominal and real behavior. To me, that is utterly fascinating. The academic study of monetary policy as well as the real study is going to be really exciting for the next decade. So that's a long way of saying that I wish that I were a grad student now trying to study, trying to learn, really learn a monetary policy, but with this whole new set of digital tools, which having spent so much time in, in tech land, you know, I think I have a, at least a modest, more than average, modest grasp of. Let's finish with some short questions and answers. How do you relax? Long distance biking with a bunch of similarly old guys. It's a way to stay, way to stay in relatively good shape. And what are you reading right now? I'm reading a bunch of stuff now on something which is tangential, but related to the evolution of the internet, you know, the whole web three stuff. I'm re-educating myself in several data science techniques for various reasons. There's a, an emerging discipline called self-sovereign identity. SSI is the acronym, which is the process by which transactions will take place on the Web3 internet that cuts out of the picture, the Facebooks and Googles, and for that matter, many financial institutions who currently control your digital identity. And so self-sovereign identity or SSI is the sort of digital infrastructure 
for how you will conduct yourself through through the Web3 world. And it's fascinating. Here's the book that I read here. Self-Sovereign Identity by Alex Cookshot and Tremond Reed. And it's just terrific. If you could be on vacation right now, where would you go? Oahu. With a, a garage full of surfboards. It's the other way to relax. Last question. If you could magically tell everyone in the world one thing, what would you tell them? <laughs> I'd recommend looking into SSI because it's both technically interesting and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be important for everybody. And it's coming at us in a good way. Thank you. Our guest today on Outside In has been Jim Shin. As I'm sure you've heard, Jim is incredibly accomplished in technology, government, finance, academia, and the intersections of all four. Thanks much, Jim. Thanks, John. Take care. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John McCundick, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor Ohingasa, John Lukumnik, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.